Hi, everyone, and welcome to On Trial, the podcast where we explore how to build your practice, trial tactics, and what can make and break your case. We're your hosts. I'm Matt Heimlich. And I'm John Rizvold. And for today's episode, I had the pleasure of talking with Sarah Davis, a partner at Kogan & Power, uh, about a case that she tried uh, a month or two ago and that resulted in a, in a huge $51 million verdict on behalf of a young ex-Marine who got into a, an altercation, quote, uh, quote unquote, uh, at a bar uh, with the security staff there that he ended up res- resulting in him becoming incomplete quadriplegic. And it, it's, it was a tremendous verdict. Uh, I had the I had the opportunity to work on the case a little bit because it was at my office for a while. Uh, but John, I want to hear your impressions because I'm a little bit too close to it to be objective. So I kind of wanted to hear your thoughts on the situation. Yeah, $51 million verdict. And it wasn't a $51 million verdict in Cook County. It wasn't a $51 million verdict at the Daily Center. It was a $51 million verdict in conservative Kendall County. Um, you know, the further west you get from the city of Chicago, the the redder the counties tend to get. And this one was a pretty stalwart, right-leaning, if not solidly red county, where you've got very, very conservative jurors who have a predilection or at least a bad reputation for not awarding fair justice value in a lot of these cases. And to see a, a verdict like this in Kendall County um, is tremendous. It's awesome. It's great for uh, plaintiffs. It's great for injured people and it's good for justice. So I'm, I'm really pretty stoked about it. Yeah, it really is a tremendous result that is going to reverberate, you know, not only in Kendall, but in the other outlying counties in Chicago, you know, where a lot of times defense attorneys and insurance adjusters think that they can pay less than fair value because that's not what a jury is going to award. And and when people like Sarah go out there and try cases and they get these, you know, full justice verdicts, you know, with the tens of millions of dollars that were rightfully awarded to him for the the incredible and permanent injuries that uh, he unfortunately has undergone and will continue to undergo, it kind of puts everyone on notice that, hey, you don't need to be in downtown Chicago to get a verdict like this. You know, these things can happen anywhere. And don't discount the value of your case just because you don't happen to be in a uh, traditionally plaintiff-friendly jurisdiction. You know, these harms and losses are real. They A jury anywhere can find them if they're presented in the right way. And that's exactly what Sarah, uh, John Power, and Dan Satina did in this case. Yeah, and I think it's really important to anybody who's listening, but especially anybody who might be listening who's not a lawyer, when you see numbers like this, they are eye-popping. And you hear a lot from the defense bar about nuclear verdicts or runaway juries or you know all these sort of um, hyperbolic statements from the defense bar about how bad large verdicts are. You have to understand like with this case and these particular injuries, and I'll let you get into the details because you know them better than I do. But from what I understand of what happened to this young man, he's 25. He's in his mid-20s at this point now. And his life is altered forever. And so this is money that's going to be used to, to care for him. It's money he needs to, to get lifetime care. And I think what people don't understand is that without these verdicts that provide tens of millions of dollars for lifetime care, the alternative is that people end up on Medicaid. They end up on the public, do- you know, the public role here. And as a result, our taxes go up. And so anytime you see caps on damages or anytime you see 
defense lawyers screening about how high verdicts are, just understand that what they're really doing is trying to save insurance companies money and raise your taxes. And when you frame it that way and you understand it, tort reform is kind of a joke. It's just a hidden tax. And it's good to see these verdicts because it means people are being taken care of by the at-fault party, not by the rest of us who didn't do anything. It also shows that there are, are ways to communicate the value of the harms and losses to people who think differently, you know, than you or I might think, or the majority of the trial bar might think, you know, these are in an essence, you know, and Nick Rowley is, uh, has been uh, on the record talking about this uh, for years, that these are constitutional cases. This is about liberty. This is about the freedom to pursue your own happiness. You know, and when those things are taken away from you, that's basically a violation of your constitutional rights. And those people, you know, because they fail to adhere to, you know, codes of conduct, safety rules, whatever it may be for your particular case, you know, they're depriving you of what you are guaranteed as a citizen of this country. And so when explained in the right way in language that people can understand, you know, these are the kind of results that can be achieved, you know, with the right client, the right case and presenting your case the right way. Yeah, it makes me think of a couple of things. First, I think that, you know, a lot of plaintiff's lawyers, and I've been guilty of this myself, so I'm not just pointing the finger, um, are understandably a little wary of conservative jurors. And because uh, not only do they potentially think differently than the majority of the trial bar, but they tend to be more conservative in their awards as well. And I don't mean just politically conservative, I mean smaller awards. And I think that we have to sort of get rid of that fear and we have to try more cases and get in front of more juries in more conservative or purple districts or whatever it might be. It's it's not easy to try a case anywhere. Trying a case is a difficult thing. And the cases that get tried are usually difficult cases. But the more we get in front of jurors and the more we speak to jurors as human beings instead of as you know, Republicans or Democrats or liberals or conservatives and just explain to them that your client is a human being and your client has undergone a life-changing experience, people want to help other people regardless of their political leanings or predilections. I know that we have a tendency to sort of view each other as the enemy, but I really do believe that juries want to help people if you frame your case the right way and you talk about the harms and losses the right way to make them real and to make them, you know, understandable to everybody. Um, and I really think we need to stop being afraid of conservative juries or conservative jurors, number one. And number two, just how important it is to frame and how important it is to choose your language and be um, particular about how you speak about harms and losses or liability or whatever it might be with the creation of rules and safety rules and things like that, that I think are vitally important. And that was done in this case to perfection. One of the many interesting things that Sarah said during the course of our conversation was that um, she thought that the jury that they ended up with was, you know, skewed a little bit young, younger than, you know, you, you would think in going into a County like that. And, and she said, well, people, kids were home from college and we ended up getting a, a younger than average, uh, jury in this case. And, and, and one of my, you know, unproven by any scientific testing theories is that younger people have a different relationship with money than older people. And when you say, you know, numbers, you know, like $50 million to someone who's, you know, 65, 
you know, they're going to think I bought my first house back in, you know, 1975 and it cost $68,000 or a hundred thousand dollars or whatever. And now 68 or $100,000, especially living in the Chicagoland area gets you literally not, not much at all. That doesn't get you a house. It doesn't get you half of a house and a quarter of a house in a lot of neighborhoods. So I think there were, and I mean, you talk about uh, billionaires. I mean, there are people, how many billionaires are there now? How many billionaires were there, you know, 20, 30 years ago? You know, I just think that younger people have a different relationship with money. I think they're more apt to award larger verdicts and be open to those kinds of numbers than certain people who might just turn their brains off when you start talking about tens of millions of dollars. And again, this is a unproven, untested theory, but I I think that there's some logic to it. And and I think that this may be, again, not certain of it, may be evidence towards that conclusion. Yeah, I think think so. The other thing I think is it's a testament to not being afraid to ask for the money. Um, You know, she said, uh, Sarah said something that stood out to me, and it was that uh, we were afraid that we were asking for too much money in a conservative district or conservative jurisdiction. And I remember um, when I was fresh out of law school, uh, I heard uh, Pat Salvi, the second, a friend of the pot, talk. And what he said was, you will never get it unless you ask for it. You're never going to get whatever the dollar amount is unless you ask for it. You're not going to ask for half a million dollars and the jury's going to go back and say, you know what, let's give them $10 million instead. That's just not going to happen. And so you have to be fearless in your ask. And will they give you what you want? I mean, in this case they did, and that's awesome. Um, sometimes will they give you less? Maybe will they give you more? I doubt it, but they're definitely not going to give it to you if you don't ask for it. And so being fearless in your ask, I think is super important. And it certainly worked out for them here. Uh, without further ado, let's go to my conversation with Sarah Davis about uh, her trial in Logan Bland versus Q West bar. Today, we'll be talking to Sarah Davis. Sarah is a partner at Kogan and Power in Chicago, where she represents injured victims and their families in personal injury, medical malpractice, and construction negligent cases. Sarah's received numerous awards recognizing her skills and achievements, and last year was named one of the top 10 female lawyers under 40 in Illinois. Sarah has achieved tremendous results for her clients, including numerous multi-million dollar verdicts and settlements, and among them, the $51 million verdict we're going to be talking about today. Sarah, thanks again for coming on and uh, taking the time to share with us. My pleasure. Thanks for asking me. So full disclosure, uh, as Sarah knows, but the listeners may not, I had some involvement in this case before it went to trial. It was originally at my firm being handled by uh, Mike Satina, one of the partners in my firm. He was, you know, kind of lived and breathed this case and I was helping him out. I prepared for trial before he unfortunately and tragically passed away before the case could get to trial. And then Sarah uh, and her partner, John Power, and actually Mike's son, uh, Danny, ended up trying the case and achieving this great verdict. It was a really amazing result. And I know I was cert- I was overwhelmed and pleased to see what you guys did with the case. It was, I, I got to watch closing, you know, I wish I would have got to see a little bit more, but it was really great seeing what you guys did uh, for the client, Logan Bland. Thank you. It was yeah. a tremendous outcome for Logan. 
Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the case and the client about Logan and what happened to him and how we ended up trial against this bar. Sure. So Logan is a charismatic 23-year-old veteran back in 2016. He is out on a Friday night with some friends at a local bar that they regularly frequent called the Q Bar in Plano, Illinois. They are served to the point of intoxication at Q Bar that evening. And he gets into work. He has words with another patron and one of the bartenders separates one of the female bartenders, separates the two of them and puts them in the office and talks to them. And then he comes back out and he's allowed to stay in the bar. And then the, he's there for a bit longer and they close out their tab and him and his buddy that he came to the bar with are sort of arguing about the tab, who's going to pay the tab. And at that time, the bar alleges that Logan and his buddy started into a physical altercation and that they had to remove them. That part happens off camera. So there were four camera videos that were turned over to us, one, two, three, and 13. And the part that the bouncers alleged that Logan got into this physical altercation does not occur on one of those cameras. So five of the bouncers then take Logan very physically. And then this part is on camera. There's one on each side of him, one on the back holding his hood and one pulling him from the front. And they pull him through the doors of the outside of the bar, at which point he loses his balance and falls. Several of the bouncers fall on him. And then at some point he is on his back. This again is off camera because of the angle of the camera. But what we do see is we then see Logan's feet come up and get thrown out of the bar. From the outside angle, we can see his feet hit the ground. And we know from putting all the angles together, and I know for your listeners, this is only audio, so it doesn't help to even show you the video, but we can tell from putting the videos together that what happens is Logan's laying on his back. This bouncer grabs his feet violently and with force, uses his head as like a fulcrum, throws his feet up over his head and out the door with such force that it dislocates the C, a C4, C5 disc in Logan's neck, causing paralysis below that because of the compression on the cord. So the second that happens, he doesn't have any more use below that level. He does later through physical therapy regain some, but not most below that level. So that... <laughs> That's the injury in a nutshell. And uh, you kind of came into this case with discovery either. I think it was completely done or almost completely done. Talk about what you did to get yourself up to speed on a, on a case you know that's this involved with this many aspects to it. So as you indicated, had not planned to get involved and I wish we never had to get involved, but we lost Mike unexpectedly and the firm needed assistance trying the case. So I think there was just the defense experts deposition left to take when we got involved. And that was just because the defendant had had multiple continuances due to various reasons. So in terms of getting up to speed, you know, there's no easy way to do it. You have to put in the work, you go and you meet with the client a lot of times and you read every deposition and all the medical records and look at all the photos and just put in the time and the work to get to know the file talk to the witnesses, track down the witnesses, talk to the witnesses. 
the things that we would typically do early in the case we're just doing right before trial. Now, before this case went to trial, were there any attempts made to resolve this case with the bar or with any other defendants in the case? So I don't know how detailed you want me to get because it is a complicated matter, but Logan did not just sue the bar for the negligence of the bouncers, but he also sued the responding paramedics, the hospital he was taken to, and the doctor, the emergency room doctor who treated him at that hospital. And the reason is because when the paramedics arrived, they were told by the bouncers that he was drunk and he had to be escorted out. They weren't told anything about how he was removed. And then they just assumed that he was a drunk and they, and this is on video, they very violently throw him in a stair chair without any securement to his neck and bounce him down the stairs and into the ambulance. And then they go to the hospital and they don't tell the hospital or the ER physician that he has a neck injury or that there's been an altercation. They just say that he's drunk. So they put him in the, in a room to sober up and they do a, what's called a range of motion test where they move the head around on the neck to see what your range of motion is. And when you have a spinal injury like Logan did, the standard of care requires mobilization, not to be moving the neck, allowing it to flex, go forward or extend as those can cause further compression on the spinal cord when it's already been compromised. So those were all breaches in the standard of care. The case against the ambulance is complicated because it's a government entity, which means you don't just prove that they breached the standard of care or were negligent. You have to prove that they were willful and wanton. It's a higher duty. So we worked, that case was worked up by Mike as well. And there were experts on that. And so what we did is we survived the motion for summary judgment on that and then mediated the case to resolve with the paramedics. And then we resolved it with the ER doctor and then the hospital had already settled before we got in. So those were all settlements and funds that Logan had before the trial even started against the bar. The case wasn't without its risks. It was in a conservative jurisdiction. Logan was very intoxicated. That's clear from the video and from his blood alcohol at the emergency room. And traditionally, conservative juries and juries in general don't like intoxicated plaintiffs and they don't like bar cases. So there was some risk, significant risk associated with taking it to trial. And so it was always important to us that given the severity of Logan's injuries and the care he's going to require for the remainder of his life, that he had that backstop of those um, millions in settlement in case things didn't go favorably at trial. So how did you end up addressing that issue in jury selection? Obviously, that's going to be a a key point that you needed to kind of get people's impressions on. Talk about how you did that in Vordier. Well, what we did is we just got it out. You know, I think I'm trying to think of who it is that uses the slogan, drink the poison, right? We asked them, well, we asked, you know, it was a very young jury. I think maybe because it was the summer, we had a lot of college kids. We had a lot of educators. We had two people on our jury who had never drank alcohol ever. We had one who was not even yet of age to drink alcohol. But in terms of the panel, we would just ask them how many of them have drank, how often they drink. And then we'd say, you know, some people have very strong feelings about, you know, drinking. And some people think that when you drink, you're responsible for what happens to you. You made the decision to become intoxicated. And other people think that when you become 
intoxicated, you're responsible for your choices. But if somebody does something to you, it doesn't change their responsibility because you were intoxicated. And then we would ask, which side do you fall on? And we would specifically call out each person and say, do you feel like if you're intoxicated, whatever happens to you, it's not your, it's your fault because you drank. We get, we tease it out of them, you know, and some of them would say no, or someone would say, yeah, I mean, you made the decision. And we'd say, no matter what, right? You feel that way. You can't change your mind about that. And if they said yes, then we would challenge them for cause. But most of them would have to, when really pushed, agree that they're responsible for their own actions. But if something is done to them just because they're intoxicated, it doesn't change the culpability of somebody else. So just we just got it out there early. We didn't hide the ball on it at all. You talked a little bit about the, the county that you're in in Kendall and the judge. Talk a little bit about you, your jury pool and, and how much the leeway the judge gave you with exploring things like intoxication during jury selection. Uh, we were in front of Judge Krentz. I thought he gave us as much room as we wanted. He asked some preliminary questions at the beginning that were pretty vague, you know, the typical jury form stuff that they get on their summons, but nothing much beyond that. And then we were giving and given as much time as we wanted, really. He didn't put much restrictions on it. I thought he was very liberal in his jury selection policies in terms of what the parties asked and how long they were given with each witness. Um and I thought he appropriately ruled on cause challenges. You know, some jury, some judges won't let anybody out for cause, no matter how hard you push. He, I think, did it appropriately. You know, Kendall County is regarded as a conservative jury. And I think that the last few elections suggest such. But regardless of someone's political leanings, I suppose, I think that the law most people want to follow what the law is and they're not just going to deviate from that. And we told the story in such a way that it wasn't about drinking. The story wasn't about drinking. Logan's case was about whether or not you follow the rules. I mean, you have a bar because you want people to drink. You're not in business if people don't drink. So this isn't a case about drinking. It was a case about whether or not they followed the rules so that when you have a business that serves alcohol, your patrons in the community are safe. Yeah. I, I want to get to your story in a second, but I, I did want to say kind of on jury selection because you, I mean, I think prior to this, the verdict, the record verdict in Kendall County was, I mean, like one quarter of this, maybe if that, maybe less. Mm-hmm. So obviously you knew given the severity and the permanency of Logan's injuries, you know, you're going to be asking for a big number at the end. How, how did uh, you address that with the jury when you were during jury selection? Well, Judge Krentz limited us in terms of asking those type of questions. I think the way we were allowed to ask it, my memory it might fail me a little bit here, was that we were only allowed to say whether they would be um, able to give a significant or substantial verdict in the event that they found in favor of the plaintiff. We weren't allowed to say, you know, seven figures or uh, in excess of $20 million or any of the things that we probably would have said had we been allowed to. We really weren't able to flush that out with the jury. That was a motion in limine. Interesting. Did you, did, after the, I'm kind of skipping to the end, did you get to talk with any of the jurors um, after the trial or any willing to communicate with you guys about their impressions about what happened? A little bit. In terms of the money, they felt that because so much of it was for Logan's future care, we brought in experts that were not challenged, meaning the defense didn't have 
their own experts to say, you know, that figure is wrong, our figure is right in terms of how much money it was going to take for Logan's care from now until the rest of his life expectancy, which was such a significant portion of the verdict. They very, they felt very strongly about that, uh, giving him that money. They all felt strongly about he was so young and had lost so much. You know, he was a father. He's never going to walk again. He has very little use of his arms, just basically his shoulder and deltoid muscles, enough so that he can sort of manipulate an electric uh, wheelchair to give him some, some independence in that regard. But otherwise, he is dependent on someone else for everything in life that to them was significant, the loss of normal life, and then both past and, pre- past and future, and that Logan does, has, and will experience significant pain as a result of these injuries. It's sort of a phenomenon that the experts testified about at trial that despite him being paralyzed, he still experiences pain. So while he can't move his legs, he could still experience pain in his legs. Um, and, and he will for the rest of his life. Yeah, it's a, it really is an unbelievable situation. You, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but talk about how you presented your case initially to the jury in opening. What kind of story were you trying to tell? What kinds of themes were you uh, trying to use to make Logan's story relatable? Well, in opening, we sort of set the first bookend, if you will, for our case that we came back around and closed up on the other bookend I'm closing, which is sort of what I alluded to earlier, that this wasn't a case about drinking. Logan was intoxicated, but you know, what we said right out of the gates was Logan was intoxicated. We're not ever going to tell you otherwise. No one's going to tell you otherwise. This isn't a case about intoxication. It's a case about if you're a business that profits off of selling alcohol, that you have a duty to do so safely for your patrons and for members of the community. And if they had just done that and followed their own rules, the rules that were in their own manual, nobody gets hurt. And then we show right out of the opening, we put up each of the pages of their own manual where they had violated their own rules. And this isn't done as sort of like a negligent training or a negligent hiring or any of that stuff. This is just to show a standard of care that was violated, their own standard of care, the standard of care they expected of their employees. And then we talked about as a result of their failure um, to follow their rules that Logan's life was ruined, you know, he, and then we talked about what was taken from him. We talked about where he was that night. He was a father and the things he loved to do. We had, you know, we had photographs of him hiking and then we would juxtaposition him with a photograph of him sitting in his wheelchair. You know, we'd have a picture of him throwing his young son up in the air and then a picture of him watching his young son play soccer with someone else. And we would just juxtaposition where he was and where he is now. And then we told the story of where we expect he'll be in the future because these conditions we know don't get better. They get worse as you age, I guess, as everything does as we age. And then we didn't talk about money or anything like that in opening. We just said at the close of evidence, we're going to ask you for a, an award of, of value that is comparable to the loss that Logan's sustained. And then on closing, if you want me to jump ahead to that, John came back around, my partner, John did the closing and just hit again on all those themes and how we had proved everything we had talked about in opening, but working in the numbers this time. So what was the defense 
response to, to this? How, how did they present their case and how did you deal with that? Well, it was a little bit interesting in this case because a new defense attorney came in about six weeks before trial to defend the case. So in a lot of cases, you'll sort of see a defense theory or a defense strategy playing out in the depositions. And we didn't have that in this case, but their position was twofold. One, that Logan was intoxicated and it was his fault because he's acting aggressively in the bar. And they said that there were two incidents, the one where he was had a verbal altercation and then the second one where he had a physical altercation with his friend. They made the physical altercation, since it happened off camera, they called employees to talk about how bad the physical altercation was, how serious and violent it was. We, in turn, called patrons and third parties to talk about that that's not what they witnessed, that they were there. And we would be able to point them out on camera and say, you were there, you had a good view of everything. Is that what happened? They'd say, no, that's not what happened. So really the defense theory was that Logan was intoxicated and out of control. And for the safety of the patrons, they had to get him out of there and they had to do so quickly. And that they didn't flip him over, that they just, he was kicking them and they just were moving his feet out of the way. That was their whole argument and that they were a competent security team that acted appropriately. It, it sounded like by some of the things John said in closing that you got some interesting testimony out of some of the, the bouncers and the other security team about, you know, various things they said, did and saw. Talk a little bit about, you know, some highlights about the testimony you got uh, that kind of created the, or that drew the jury to draw the conclusion that this, this security team was not acting uh, correctly and that there was in some way some sort of a cover-up. One of the bouncers came in live and, and testified to, you know, we didn't drag him out. I wouldn't call it dragging. We didn't, we didn't tell anybody he was, we had to throw him out. We didn't tell anybody that he was drunk. And then we played the 911 audio while he was on the stand and he's on 911 saying, yeah, he's out of breath, one. And two, he's talking about how, you know, it was pretty rough and he put up pretty much of a fight. We really had to get him out. We had to drag him out and throw him out the door. And he's describing a pretty physical encounter, which was in direct contrast to what he had just testified to on stand. And they're hearing it in a jury's hearing it on audio played in the jury room. That was a pretty powerful moment. The other thing that I was just really strange was one of the bouncers testified that after this happened, he laid down and kind of <laughs> used the expression like spooned Logan because he knew he was so hurt. But then everyone else denied that they thought he was hurt and they denied to the paramedics that he was hurt. And they even were denying on the stand that they knew anything about him being hurt until they were served with the lawsuit. But then if you play the, the video way past when this happens, police arrive, you see the three men who were involved in removing Logan acting out what happened, that he had flipped his feet over and that he hurt his neck. They're like pantomiming it on the video. They knew exactly what happened that night, but they had spent all of their depositions and their testimony at trial denying that they knew anything. Oh, I didn't know that was happening. I wasn't in the vestibule. I didn't see that, but you know, a picture speaks louder than words. 
Yeah, it is amazing that so much of what happened was caught on video, but even with as much as there was on video, you talked about the various numbers of the cameras. It seemed like there was a lot more that was potentially out there that was never produced. Yeah, we won't ever know. We got like I said, we got into the case late, so discovery was done. But what one of the officers, the one of the detectives testified to at trial was that when he got to the bar and requested the video, they were unable to pull it off the first time. So they had to come back a second time. And then he asked for everything they had and that that's what they gave him. And it's cameras one, two, three, four, and 13. And what's interesting is they have these poker machines or like slot machines in the front of the bar. And typically where you have your cameras is your money, right? Like they have it on their cash registers and, you know, in your entrances and you typically have it where the money is. And so then when we were questioning one of the witnesses on the stand about where there were other cameras, we asked, are there cameras that would capture the poker machines, the video poker machines? He said, yeah. And those cameras probably would have captured this alleged physical altercation that required them to throw Logan out of the bar that they argued about at the whole trial. We tried and were unsuccessful to get a 501 instruction in front of the jury for missing or failure to produce evidence. And of course, since we were successful at trial, there's no cause of action for spoliation. But in terms of what they had and what wasn't produced, I'd, it's hard for me to speak to that because we got involved so late. Yeah. So it, it doesn't sound like the defense really contested Logan's injuries. There wasn't any uh, you know, defense life care planner or anything. So what what was their case about? Uh, you talked about intoxication. Did they have any experts outside of having the bars, the uh, bar staff deny that what happened happened? What what were they hanging their hat on? Well, they were fully committed to their liability defense because, as you mentioned, they did not have a expert to contest life expectancy or the life care plan or the nature and extent of Logan's injuries. They were really all in on that they weren't liable. And they had a security expert from the East Coast who came in and testified, Russell Collins, on their behalf. Let's talk about, you know, you talked about what John did in closing, you know, kind of confirming that you you said what you were going to prove and you in fact prove it and then kind of converting the harms and losses you know, into dollar amounts. Talk about that process and what considerations you were thinking about when you were coming up with how much to ask for. Well, some of it was easier than others, right? It was real easy to set a dollar amount for lost future wages and lost and future medical care and past medical care because we had the hard numbers from the bills and the economist on those and the life care planner. So those parts... The jury had already heard the evidence on that. And we just reminded them what the evidence was on that and then filled those line items in. I think the trickier part is when you're talking about pain and suffering, loss of normal life, disfigurement, those nebulous gray areas. And we broke them into past and future so that each had two line items. We started just making a list of all of the things that he had missed and will missed. And the lists were just so long for each of those elements, it was hard to come up with a figure that was large enough to encapsulate all those things, capture all those things. Because his, I mean, his loss is just so considerable. I mean, he can't pick up his son. He can't, 
he's unlikely to have any more children. He's unlikely to wed and date. And if he does, it's very complicated and not romantic. And, you know, he's not likely to hold down gainful employment. And I don't say that just from a lost wage standpoint, but from a self-respect, self-confidence standpoint that you gain from going to work and making a living. He's, you know, he was an outdoorsman. He's not going to camp or fish or ride a horse or, I mean, he's not even going to use the bathroom and get into bed on his own. He's lost all independence, all privacy. How do you even begin to put a figure on that? No, uh, we just, we did the best we could. We were frankly concerned. We were asking for too much money in such a conservative district. And we were proven wrong. Yeah, I think a lot of that probably has to do with Logan himself, you know, having had the opportunity to meet him. I certainly think, I think the world of him. Talk about Logan a little bit and uh, what he's like and, and how he handled and has been handling all this. Sure. Logan is a very charismatic, handsome young man who has not spent a moment feeling sorry for himself since this happened. The jury got to get, got to get to know Logan through Logan's testimony, through Logan's mom's testimony. One of the more emotional witnesses came from his girlfriend at the time who testified that after being with Logan several months after his injury, almost a year, he told her that she had to move on, that he wasn't going to, you know, punish her by being with him because he was so limited in what he had to offer her. And in her words, I think she said he let he let me because she wouldn't have left if he hadn't said that. And that was very emotional testimony. And we heard from his mom, who is just the most devoted caregiver to him. He has had almost no hospitalizations in the five years since he's been injured, which is almost unheard of for someone with such a catastrophic injury. Usually there are bed sores and infections and other things that require hospitalizations. And he's had almost none because she is so devoted to him and so takes such excellent care and just knows her son inside and out. And she's such the rock. And that really came through, through her testimony, how she knows his care and she knows her son and how devoted she is to him. And so, you know, she talked about one of her fears being if something happens to her, who's going to take care of Logan? He never wants to have to go into a, a facility and, and not be able to stay home. And they also talked about how the home that they are living in, only part of it is handicapped accessible in that they want to get a home where they could, you could have more access to more of the home. So I think, you know, we talk a lot about case selection and parties and stuff, and it's a perfect example of, you know, good plaintiffs get good results. Yeah, it couldn't happen to a more deserving client or family as far as the result uh, is concerned. Just great people. A hundred percent, yeah. I mean, I wish we could go back um, to November of 2016 and have it never happen, but we can't do that. So I am glad they are going to have money to help with his care for the rest of his life. Kind of, and one of the things that you guys did during closing that I really liked, I actually talked about it on one of the earlier podcasts, because I thought it was brilliant, was, you know, because there are different elements of damage, one of which is, you know, reduced life expectancy, you know, because obviously paralysis is something that tends to take many years off someone's life. And, and the, talk about the way that you guys 
chose to address that versus, you know, the medical care costs that he would need going forward? So what we did is we asked the jury to be optimists with us and to give him the money for the best care for a full life expectancy rather than giving him maybe a dollar for a shortened life expectancy. Because with excellent care, we were told by the medical witnesses that he could hope to live his full life expectancy, even though they said the odds weren't great, but that that was the best chance for him to have his full life expectancy. So we asked them to give us his medical care for his full life expectancy, rather than giving us an award for for losing 20 years off his life expectancy as a result of the damages. And that's what they did. And then we said, if you don't agree and you think he's going to die 20 years sooner than he otherwise would, then you're going to have to compensate him for that. And then you're going to need to take some of the money off of what he needs for future care because he won't need that future care. So the choice is yours. And then we encourage them to be optimistic with us. And they were. And I I think that that was that was a brilliant to kind of inject some hope into a, a fairly dire situation. And I think it makes the jury feel like they're doing something productive and being helpful rather than, you know, putting a dollar value on a loss, creating, you know, something, some positive change in the life. And I I just, I love the way you guys did that. I thought it was brilliant. That's exactly why we did it. That's the whole, that's the whole point. I do it a lot with clients that have a future surgery recommendation and, you know, the defendants will say a lot, well, we just don't know if they're going to get it. And I always tell juries, maybe you're right. Maybe they won't get it. In which case you have to give them pain and suffering for the rest of their life. But that's not what we're asking you for. What we're asking you for is the future surgery. And hopefully then they don't have the pain and suffering for the rest of their life. And I just always think that resonates with people. They want to believe that things will get better if they get this money and that it's going to improve their circumstance. I think you're exactly right. And then how talk about you know, jury deliberations. How long were they out? And I, I know that what they gave was slightly different than what you asked for. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So they were out about four hours. I think it was maybe a little less, a little more somewhere around there. They got, they got the verdict just before lunchtime or excuse me. They got the, they got the case just before lunchtime. And I think they came back around four o'clock might've been a little later than that. They gave us a little bit more than the bottom line that we asked for, but they gave us the figures we asked for. And the reason is because John and I were working on the closing until the wee hours of the night before. And we did the math wrong and they did the math right. (laughs) And it's embarrassing, but it's the truth. Oh, that's amazing. You know, no, no smarter deliberative body than a jury, you know, right. (laughs) That's, and so but they they did give Logan some some faults due to intoxication, but it sounds like the numbers kind of came out in the wash. Is that right? So they did give him twenty percent fault for his role in the event occurring that evening. We always anticipated that he would be assigned some contributory, and we always thought it would be somewhere between ten and thirty percent. So that sort of fell right where we thought it would, you know. It's hard in these circumstances when he's on videotape, so intoxicated, not to expect some contributory negligence. Sure. And then, 
So now that the the verdict is in, you know, the work, the work's never done. I'm sure you're dealing with lots of post-trial issues, but it's a tremendous result in, I mean, like I said, it's multiple times the prior record in the county. Uh Um, And I I think it's, and again, it's a great tribute to to you and John and Dan for putting a great case together. And uh, again, you had great clients, obviously that helps, but talk about, you know, it sounds like a lot of stuff worked. I mean, talk about lessons you've learned from this case. You know, what what worked? What would you do differently, if anything? What, what were your takeaways from, from this whole experience? We need to try more cases. For trial lawyers, I say that the plaintiffs, oh, plaintiffs bar all the time. We settle too many cases. We don't try enough cases. Good cases, you know, not just the ones that nobody will pay us on. Uh, I guess my... My takeaway is don't be scared of the bad facts. Just own them. Own them. They're, that's where the def- defendant wants to argue. They want to. They want you denying and avoiding and running from the bad facts. But if you just accept the bad facts, and then you can move and focus on what you want to talk about instead of living where the defendant wants to. What uh, did I learn? Don't be concerned. Don't be scared of what we have labeled as conservative jurisdictions. And oh, you don't want to try a case here. You don't want to try a case there. They never, you know, come back with money or anything. In the right case, put on the right way. It doesn't matter where the jury is. All right. Well, Sarah, again, I really appreciate you sharing your experience with us. And again, it's a, a tremendous result. And uh, despite what you said, this is a tough jurisdiction. So <laughs> extra congratulations are in order. But if someone wants to get a hold of you to ask a question or talk about a case, what's the best way for people to do that? Uh, they can reach me at 312-477-2500. You can email me at davis D-A-V-I-S, at Kogan, C-O-G-A-N, Power, P-O-W-E-R.com. You can go to our website too, any of those ways. All right, Sarah Davis, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Once again, I want to thank Sarah Davis for coming on and sharing her experience with us. I know that I learned a lot. John, I know you did as well. I think there's a lot for everybody in there uh, on that tremendous verdict. And before we wrap up today, we want to give you our 30-second trial tip. One thing we do to make our cases stronger and our trials better. John, what's yours for the week? Try more cases. Sarah stole it from me. That was one of her tips, and I think it's absolutely vital. Trials are back. They are back. We're getting trial dates, albeit in 2022, maybe 2023, unless you're in Cook County, then you're getting it next week. Um, But we need to try more cases. And you're not going to see verdicts like this unless you've got the courage to stand in front of a jury. And I am just as culpable as anybody else in settling too many cases. Uh, I want to and need to try more cases. I think we all do because it's good for our clients. So try more cases. Mine is kind of a a prequel, I guess, to that is find ways to keep your case moving forward. You know, especially during COVID, there's been a lot of ways the defense bar has been refusing to move things forward. They've been delaying. They've been denying. It's the the old bag of tricks. Find a way to keep things moving forward. Get them the, the medical records and send a demand. 
you know, notice up a, a deposition and file a motion to compel when they don't respond. You know, find, find send that demand letter. Find ways to leverage, you know, the insured against the insurer and, and put pressure on them to actually do something on the file. I, I know that's been a frequent issue in my cases. I'm trying to get creative. I'm trying to find ways to move these cases forward and towards a resolution, be it settlement trial, whatever it comes. You know, I want to be fully prepared, but you know, one thing the case can't be doing is standing still. So use whatever tools, whatever leverage you have at your disposal and make sure they, they, they keep the cases moving. Cause like John said, we're trying cases now finally. And it's a good thing finally. for all of us. And that's going to be our episode for today. I want to thank Sarah Davis again, partner of Cogren Power and everyone who helps make this machine run mostly, which is mostly John and I, we can take that out. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas. Just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at At Trial Podcast. You can also rate and leave us your feedback on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. And until next time, we'll see you on trial.